This is Keeping Current with Wayne Potter. Welcome to Keeping Current, the weekly current affairs program with your host, Wayne Potter. Welcome to the Keeping Current show. This is Wayne Potter, your host. This is the place where we talk about the ideas, issues, and trends that shape our everyday life. Many of us enjoy looking at the mountains that have existed for eons in our nearby countryside. I particularly enjoy seeing Mount Hood, Mount St. Helens, Mount Rainier, Mount Jefferson, Three Sisters, and even Crater Lake, to name a few. My appreciation of these major volcanic centers grew manifold when I heard Carolyn Dreidger, who is a media representative for the United States Geological Survey, or USGS, Cascade Volcano Observatory. I arranged for her to speak at the public affairs program at Willamette View in Oak Grove, Oregon. Her presentation provided the audience with a phenomenal amount of information. I appreciated her personal story about the eruption of Mount St. Helens on May 18, 1980, as well as her description of the significant and important role that the USGS plays in protecting the lives of people that live near any volcanic center. She reminds us that volcanoes are never inactive, they're just sleeping. Finally, she describes the important role that the USGS plays in cooperating with international governments when significant volcanic eruptions, such as the Bukhari White Island eruption in New Zealand. I'm sure that you'll enjoy listening to Carolyn. She's enthusiastic, engaging, and above all, very well-informed. We'll join the Willamette View residents as they hear Elise Myers introduce Carolyn Dreidger, Outreach Coordinator for the USGS Cascades Volcano Observatory. Good evening, everyone. Welcome, and thank you very much for coming to our program. I'm Elise Myers. I'm the Chairman of the Public Affairs Committee. And as you know, we have been talking a lot about the big one, right? Tonight we learn about 17 other big ones. So we're really in for a treat. And now I will turn the program over to Wayne Potter, who is our host for the evening. Wayne. Good evening. Uh, great to see so many people here this evening. It's a pleasure to have this opportunity to introduce Carolyn Dredger who's a hydrologist and media contact for the United States Geological Survey, Cascades Volcano Observatory, located in Vancouver, Washington. Carolyn uh, earned her master's degree in education in 1975 at Chippenburg State University in Pennsylvania. Uh, she has been employed with the uh, USGS since 1978, doing research on glaciers and water resources and she, and she joined the Cascades Volcano Observatory program um, in 1990 and works there to the present. Uh, and is uh, her major focus is on public education. Uh, her work contributes to the USGS mission, which is to provide science about the natural hazards that threaten lives and livelihoods, the water, energy, minerals, and other natural resources we rely on 
and on the health of ecosystems and the environment, the impacts of climate and land use change. Much of our work during the last six years has been on promoting volcano preparedness. Then she's been also engaging the public in meeting the Cascades Volcano Observatory staff. And she uh, shows the public the, uh, the CBO facilities and demonstrates how it carries out the USGS mission. And now tonight, uh, she brought six types of materials located on the back table over here that you can pick up if you want to find out about some of the particulars, uh, various sites and observances where they are working. Um, you know, it's already been mentioned, but the information that she'll share with us tonight is uh, perfectly dovetails with the Willamette View staff and the residents' efforts to prepare us to deal with emergency situations. Please join me in welcoming Carolyn. Welcome. Thank you, Wayne. Thanks to everyone for having me here tonight. Uh, it, it was just—I've been here for, I guess, two hours, and wow, it has just been one great conversation after another. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like for all of you being here with all your, your professions and everybody talking about what they know and places they've visited. Um, boy, a really dynamic environment here. It's been really fun so far. So we're going to spend the next hour or so talking about volcanoes in the area. Are you ready for this? Are you sure you're ready for this? <laughs> Uh, okay, I want to see a show of hands right now. Uh, you know, if you were school children, everybody would be popping up and saying, I saw announcing Helen's erupt. So, <laughs> but you're not. But I'm going to ask you anyway right now, how many of you witnessed the big catastrophic eruption of Mount St. Helens? Wow. Okay. That's quite a few of you. Um, how many of you see it as somewhat of a landmark in your life? You remember where you were, what you were doing when you saw it? Amazing. You know, uh, we see that event as being absolutely historical in the Pacific Northwest, and it was, it seems like everybody has a connection to Mount St. Helens in some way or another. How many people climbed Mount St. Helens or spent time at Spirit Lake prior to the big eruption? Uh, you saw big changes, right? So it was very exciting, wasn't it? But it was, I, I have to say, after witnessing it myself, it was, it was also devastating to see what it did to the landscape. We lost 57 lives then, and we as geologists felt a little bit maybe uh, uh, unhappy with how we were not able to predict that big event, um, but we've learned a lot since that time. So, uh, all right, so I'll, I mentioned that well, I'll give you a little bit of a background for myself. Um, in 1978, I joined the U.S. Geological Survey. I did not join the Volcano Hazards Program. I was interested in glaciers. And I guess I became interested in glaciers by visiting Glacier National Park when I was a child, and that was really exciting. And I thought, you know, I love geology, but I think that the most dynamic geologic process I will ever see is a glacier moving. Well, that was until 1980. <laughs> and in 1980, I was um, working at the, the USGS Glaciology Research Office in Tacoma, Washington. Mount St. Helens reawakened. And our staff, my boss, Mark Meyer, said, you know, we have a much better distance measuring device uh, here in the glacier office, and we should let you borrow it down there. So my colleague, Mindy Brugman, and I, 
drove down to Mountain Hens on May 17th. It was a beautiful day, and it seemed like a great adventure for 20-somethings. And so we thought, okay, let's go down here. We'll go to Timberline. We will spend some time with Mindy's uh, research project, which was working on the Strewstring Glacier, looking at the effect of a warming volcano on the glacier movement. And uh, so we were at Timberline Parking Lot, uh, amazing place to be. And um, then after that, we went up to other oh, Timberline Parking Lot. You can see there's the bulge. And it was, you know, we were feeling pretty immortal back then. And thought, wow, you know, with that fab, we could be in real trouble. I don't think we could run away from that. And, of course, uh, then we went up to Coldwater, too, and we took pictures of David there, and Harry Glicken was there as well. And uh, we showed Harry, or, uh, showed David how to use the distance measuring device. It's that, you can see it in the back of the, of the truck there. So we showed him how to use it. Oh, here it is. Right there. And uh, we thought, you know, David, we'd like to spend a night up here, and then the next day we'll just take a helicopter over to the Shoestring Glacier. And David said, you know, I was at Augustine Volcano last summer, and I barely made it out of there because uh, the helicopter couldn't get in, and I was stranded there, and an eruption started. And, you know, the next day the entire area was wiped out, and that kind of spooked me. He said, why don't you, you two just leave for the night and then come back up tomorrow morning and go spend the, the night in the Shiloh Inn in Vancouver. And so, so, that, so Mindy and I reluctantly put our sleeping bags and tents back in the car, and we said goodbye to David, and Harry followed soon after in his vehicle. And here's some parting shots of Mount St. Helens over Spirit Lake uh, on the highway out to I-5. I think it was probably some of the last uh, photos taken of Mount St. Helens intact. And then, of course, a big eruption happened the next day. And uh, Mindy and I were driving up to Mount St. Helens, driving back up there. We saw the debris avalanche, the giant landslide. We thought, what is that? It looks like an eruption, but not from the summit. What's happening? And we were soon to realize that it was a, the massive debris avalanche landslide uh, and then the lateral blast that occurred immediately after, uh, going all the way, you know, 17 miles distant north of the volcano. So Mindy and I went back to Vancouver. We started answering phone calls, media calls, news media calls. We answered hundreds of news media calls. And at that point, I realized, you know, Karen, our society just is not prepared for volcanoes. We have known as geologists that these volcanoes could erupt again. In 1975, the USGS put out a press release saying that the studies of Crandall and Mono showed that Mount St. Helens could indeed erupt before the end of the 20th century. And then, of course, it did two years later. All right, so I, I, that kind of planted a seed that uh, in me saying that, you know, this glaciology is really great stuff. And I went on to change my career in <laughs> um, working on uh, the effect of, of Mount St. Helens ash on glaciers and the amount of glacier ice on other volcanoes, that sort of thing, glacial-generated uh, debris flows. And then, you know, you just came, I just came to a point where my cup was full, and I said, you know, I really think we need to do more with society and let's start an outreach program. And they said, we don't, we as scientists, we have no idea. How do you start an outreach program? <laughs> and I had some ideas, and uh, they let us run with it. And I started a program, and it went from there. So I have been doing outreach 
uh, to mostly to public officials and to information disseminators, distributors, newspapers, um, National Park Service and Forest Service, uh, teachers, uh, all of those groups uh, since about 1995. Uh, I like this picture. That's why I put it in there. It doesn't relate to the current topic, but you can see this is Interstate 5 northbound near Toledo on May 25th. Remember, there were multiple eruptions that happened in 1980. And you can see the truckers coming southbound were working on their CB radios coordinating, and they said, you know what? Let's keep the traffic going slow because if it speeds up, they'll whip up all the ash into the air. The cars, cars will do so, and we won't have any visibility, and we'll have traffic accidents. So you can see that's why the truckers are lined up there with a bunch of cars behind them. Right, so that's, that's a fast forward. That was in 1980, and then in 1982, the U.S. Geological Survey decided to, that they really needed to do more systematic studies of volcanoes, systematic monitoring of a volcanic activity to see what was going on, not just at Mount St. Helens, but at all the other Cascade volcanoes. And so the USGS Cascades Volcano Observatory was founded, and that's our staff. We have approximately 80 people on staff. And uh, uh, we are one of five observatories run by the USGS in Hawaii, Alaska, Yellowstone, uh, California, and here in, in Washington for the volcanoes of Washington and Oregon. And there's a good reason for that, because pretty much everywhere you look in eastern Oregon, and frankly right here, you're looking at volcanic rocks. There's a lot of volcanism here. This is a place where volcanoes have been erupting for a long, long time. And the current manifestation, the current volcanoes are only the most recent uh, uh, volcanic, uh, act, so only most recent volcanic activity. Uh, so starting with Bachelor and South Sister, North Middle, etc., um, all the way up north past Jefferson and Mount to Mount Hood. All of these volcanoes have erupted relatively recently in geologic time. And then we come to the Portland area and realize that we have the Boring Volcanic Field. It is called the Boring Volcanic Field, named after the type location where the rocks were first examined, as in geologic tradition, uh, after Boring, Oregon. And uh, there are just, you know, dozens of volcanoes dotting the Portland region. And, you know, Rocky Butte and Powell Butte and you know, on and on and on, Mount Tabor, those are all small volcanoes. Uh, the, the youngest is actually in Clark County, and uh, we have uh, them up in the northern part of the county with Battleground Lake, uh, Battleground Lake State Park, and then in the eastern part of the county as well. All right, so one of the things I realized that, you know, we as Pacific Northwesterners are really attached to our volcanoes. You know, there's this this deep, deep connection to volcanoes. We even name our beers after volcanoes, right? And in a sense, we've we've kind of a, we've taken on the majesty of these volcanoes, and we claim them. And there's there's a deep, a long thread in our history, in our regional identity, that we are the place where that we live to have, to have easy access to these volcanoes. And maybe we feel a little bit of a sense of entitlement in that, you know. And 
maybe we feel even a little bit of sense of, of you know, exceptionalism, that we're a little bit exceptional. Um, and maybe we are. And maybe that has some bearing on how we treat the land and our stewardship of the land and maybe how we treat one another. We just think differently than many parts of the, of the nation. So here you can see this is where CBO was born, uh, essentially the beginning of um, the volcanic activity. You can see that in the upper part of this little seismogram, it's pretty clean. And then all of a sudden, um, on May 18th, you just started seeing lots of activity. This is probably, I, I haven't examined this one in detail, but um, I think we're looking at little earthquakes and then all of a sudden big harmonic tremors and lots of magma moving underneath, causing volcanoes or eruptions down below. Okay, um, 160 active volcanoes. We call them active because they are not dead. They're not extinct. Yes, there are some that are extinct. We really dislike what the, the fourth grade textbooks call some volcanoes that aren't erupting. They say they're dormant, but we think that's pretty misleading because these volcanoes, even when not erupting, you know, it's just like us when we're sleeping. We, all our vital things, are, processes are still going on inside of our bodies. And it's the same way with volcanoes. We have active earthquakes uh, down below the volcanoes. We have geothermal, you know, heat and hot springs. Uh, we're on the edge of the subduction zone where fresh magma can be made. And we have relatively recent eruptions here in the Northwest. Uh, so we've actually categorize the volcanoes so we can prioritize how we treat them, how we monitor them, how much monitoring uh, instrumentation we put on them. And uh, we've, we've actually looked at all 160 or so active volcanoes capable of erupting again in the United States. And most of those are in the Pacific Northwest, those very high threat volcanoes and high threat volcanoes. So those are the volcanoes that we are concentrating most of our efforts on. Now, Cascades Volcano Observatory has three core functions. First, we do research. We see the past as key to the future. The, kind, the, the kinds of activity that happens in the past, as with humans, you know, the kind of actions we take in the past are similar. It's the same. Our personality remains the same, you know. So it's kind of what a, it shows us what we might do in the future, right? We don't turn from being a very quiet person necessarily to being a very explosive person, and that's how it is with the, with the volcanoes. Now, this is where we get out our rock hammers and do a lot of pecking on the rocks so we can see what's happened in the past. And this is at uh, Glacier Peak Volcano, um, looking at some of these massive, massive layers of what we call tephra. That's volcanic ash and larger chunks uh, that, have, that make up that mountain. All right, um, so... This is a, a, a graphic showing eruptions in the Cascade Range, uh, a timeline from 4,000 years ago to the present. And when we put this together, you know, we, ju we just needed a, a timeline that could fit on a page. There's nothing special about 4,000 years ago. That's not when the volcanoes be be began to erupt. They were erupting for hundreds of thousands of years before then. But anyway, and then on the, the, uh, the right side, you can see the red line indicating the time roughly 200 years ago, you know, a little after when our nation was founded. And each of those little uh, motifs, those little volcano motifs, uh, indicates uh, an eruption, but not just one eruption, probably an eruptive period when there were multiple eruptions going on. 
You can see that Mount St. Helens has erupted, erupted most recently in the last 4,000 years, followed by Rainier, uh, Shasta, um, uh, Glacier Peak. Um, all these have had relatively uh, high numbers of eruptions. You can also notice that there is no set frequency between these eruptions. So we can't really say that they're overdue for eruption because there's no set frequency between eruptions. And uh, the other thing is that we look at what's happened in the last few hundred years. We realize that on average, we have perhaps two volcanoes or two big eruptions per century. You know, and that's maybe 10% of a century. You know, in the 20th century, we had uh, Lassen Peak erupting between, uh, was that 1914, 1917, 19 or so. Uh, then we had Mount St. Helens between 1980 and 1986. And now uh, we've had uh, eruptions at Mount St. Helens 2004 to 2008. So it's pretty likely that we, our children or their children, will see another eruption in the 21st century. Okay. Uh, here are some stats. So 25 volcanoes have erupted in the last 12,000 years in the Cascade Range. Uh, about two, there are two eruptions per century. Um, and uh, uh, so that's about the same magnitude as, uh, uh, as when we have a Cascadia magnitude 9 earthquake. All right, now let's move on to the second one, which is volcano monitoring. So this is what everybody thinks about, I think, when you think of working on a volcano because you think about seismograms and such. Now, why can we monitor volcanoes? And can we have eruptions happen without warning? It's a really pertinent question. So as magma moves to the surface, it really cannot get to the surface without causing a lot of ruckus and that it's a, it, it breaks its shoulders aside the surrounding rocks and it causes uh, them to shake, which makes earthquakes, which we can measure. It releases gases that we can measure. Uh, the, cham the, the magma chamber um, may increase in volume. Magma's coming up into it, uh, just to a, a little storage point, uh, uh, a little atrium, you know, like right before the front door of the volcano. So it's sitting there for maybe decades, centuries or more. And so that causes the whole volcano and the region around it to swell. So those are all very, very helpful. And we use everything that we can at our disposal. We use air and ground-based uh, sniffers to look at the gap, to determine the, uh, the, uh, the gas content uh, during ambient, during normal times, as well as during eruptions. We use remote sensing from satellites. We have thermal imaging, just like they, they use to find bodies, you know, put those little, inf little uh, fleers on the front of the helicopters uh, so we can determine what the temperature is. We survey all these different things. All, we use many different sensors. But there's a reason, a very good reason, why we can't rely on just throwing equipment out there when it appears something might happen. Volcanoes can reawaken and then go into a full swing pretty quickly. For example, Mount St. Helens in, uh, in 1980 showed its first, first earthquakes in, on May, excuse me, March 20th, March 20th, 1980. On March 25th, we had a little, we had uh, a crater form and then more activity and the first real eruption um, on the 27th of May. Uh, I'm sorry, March. Let's remember, there was a slow-mo rollout of Mount St. Helens eruption before 
uh, May 18th. All right, so uh, these volcanoes can, as I say, they can go into action really quickly. I think you're all familiar with the bulge that, ha that, was, uh, that appeared on the north side of Mount St. Helens. And we always knew that the magma had intruded into the volcano. But only recently have we realized that it probably happened in five days' time, you know, from probably happened on the 25th of March, 1980. And then perhaps it continued to squeeze up into the volcano, uh, forcing the, the uh, north side outward. So we have to be ready. We have to be able to tell what is the normal behavior for that volcano and what is unusual. And all the volcanoes are different. Even in, in 2004, when Mount St. Helens was erupting, there was more gas, more carbon dioxide gas uh, coming out of Mount Baker which was you know, pretty, being pretty quiet, uh, then there was from Mount St. Helens an eruption. So you really need to get to know your individual volcanoes. And so that's why we need to have the instrumentation in long before, even hopefully years before an actual eruption happens. Now, we are ready with a little emergency device, a little guy named a spider. And a spider can be lifted by a helicopter. There's a long sling that there, you attach it to the base of the helicopter. Uh, you take the, the helicopter, goes into the volcanic, volcanic crater, um, does a, a gentle landing of the spider, and then, uh, it, you know, we don't have to be on the ground. We can get in and out of there pretty quickly. So you can see that it has a, a, has a seismometer uh, for measuring earthquake activity. Uh, it has infrasound, so we can look at pressure differences very quickly. And uh, when there's an eruption, it, it, it interferes with the pressure in the atmosphere, so we can detect that. With lightning, there's a lightning, is base, a lightning device uh, detector is basically used to determine when there is volcanic ash in the air because there's a lot of rubbing of particles one against the other, which causes static electricity. And then, of course, a radio antenna because we can take this and, and we can uh, transmit the signals automatically back to the, the Cascades Volcano Observatory. All right, then the third function is community preparedness. Now, you might think, well, that's it. Maybe that sounds like a little bit of a soft thing, but we realize that when you, the public, expect that the USGS and authorities are going to be ready for the next eruption, you know, we're all going to be painted the same color. If there, when something goes wrong, you know, the government did something wrong, right? And we realize, and we realize, especially from 1980, that all, everybody involved in the entire chain of people who looked at the volcano's past to monitoring its current activity to the people who are talking to residents on the ground in, in emergency management, everybody needs to be cognizant. We have to have built trusting relationships among ourselves so we don't have to you know, walk in on a crisis and start shaking hands. It just doesn't work well that way. One of the reasons why we are so adamant about this is because the 1980s had some devastating volcanic eruptions, and they were very influential to us. And it wasn't just Mount St. Helens. It was uh, where we lost 57 people. It was El Chichon Volcano in south southern Mexico where we lost 2,000 people from these deadly hot pyroclastic flows, these avalanches of hot rock and gas that vaporized things. Uh, it was... Nevada de Ruiz volcano in Colombia, 
which uh, where there was a, a, very, a volcano similar to Mount Rainier, but and it had a similar amount of snow and ice, maybe less, uh, on its surface. It was uh, threatening to erupt. There were people living tens of miles away, maybe the same distance as Mount Hood is from Portland, but there were so many intervening hills that you couldn't see Nevada del Ruiz. The authorities said, you know, if this volcano erupts, it's going to melt snow and ice, and it's going to create a, this muddy slurry of rock and wood, a, what we call a lahar, and it's going to rush down valley and destroy everything. And so they talked to the residents, they talked to the business people, to the, to, uh, the, the people in the churches. Uh, people just did not believe the scientists. And so they, they, they didn't have this trust built already. And so, in the end, it was a dark and stormy night, the 13th of November, 1985. And there was a football game on, a championship. People were all watching TV. Volcanic ash had fallen earlier that day from an eruption, but it, that had stopped. People thought, oh, there's no danger anymore. And then they started hearing a roar outside their doors. People opened their doors. The mud flow, the lahar, came into their living rooms. People, some people, the lucky ones, escape with their lives. But we say here 20,000, I think the more accurate number is maybe 25,000 people died. They were buried in mud and perished. That was a wake-up call. We really needed to do more uh, in preparedness. And it also showed that the whole issue of Volcanic eruptions is a global problem. We all have to put our resources together, and we have to be civic-minded. We have to help one another, no matter what countries you know uh, are experiencing these these problems. All right. So now, in Washington and Oregon, we have coordination plans which we have built, we've constructed with uh, emergency managers, and we practice them. We we, we do a little bit of role playing where we pretend that eruption is happening. What are we going to do? And then we see where our plan needs to be repaired. We do that a lot. We do that often. Uh, we also work with, as mentioned earlier, in the news media, educators, uh, park visitors. We make exhibits. Uh, we have close connections with Mount Rainier National Park, with the Forest Service at Mount Hood. This is the ribbon cutting for an opening of an exhibit. Uh, we work a lot with the emergency managers. On the lower picture, you can see the city of Puyallup uh, starting their evacuation drill for 8,000 school children. This was last May. And in the upper one, that is, they are public information officers from the Portland-Clark County area. All right, and so you can see that at CBO we need many different kinds of people, many different kinds of scientists, people who study uh, lahars, people who are computer programmers, uh, geologists, uh, hydrologists, you know, just on and on. Okay, let's take a little armchair trip to some of the volcanoes in your backyard. You know, how many of you have traveled to some volcanoes in Oregon? It's a show of hands. Have you been to volcanoes in Oregon? Oh, great, because volcanoes really make the landscape, don't they? If you have volcanoes, you have good scenery. But there's also another side to it, okay? And uh, so let's look at the hazards that... Uh, that uh, occur that the, the same processes that have built the volcanoes are hazards, right? So in the proximal, that's the near area, near near volcano areas. 
uh, we can have lethal hazards within minutes. We can have uh, uh, hot pyroclastic flows, these avalanches, hot rock and gas, coming down on the side of Mount Hood. Timberline Lodge, right in the middle of a, a deposit of pyroclastic uh, flow deposits. There's, there's just chunks of rock that came down um, in the last eruption, um, you know, in the 1790s or so at Mount Hood. Right there it is. So uh, we're going to have all these bad things happen on Mount Hood. So go up there and enjoy Timberline right now <laughs> while you can. Uh, people may have 30 minutes or less. And, you know, it's not just a problem for people visiting the area. It's a problem for Highway 26. It's a problem for the, air, for the airport, Portland Airport. It's a problem for Interstate 84 and for the railroad and for the barges going by on the river. So there are just lots of complicating factors. So some of these, for example, here's that Haymade. Do you remember when, in 1973, that uh, Surtsey volcano? I guess it was, six, yeah, in 63, Surtsey volcano erupted. And then in 73, um, a nearby uh, volcano erupted on the small island of Hame in Iceland. And you can see the kinds of issues they, they have. Uh, I've actually visited this lava flow. It was still hot, actually. But, you know, they did something really intelligent there. They didn't try to build houses on it. Um, they made it into a BMX motorbike park. <laughs> So that people can just ride their bikes on it, and you know, if it if the whole area becomes active again, it's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of loss. But you can see that you know houses were destroyed at Hame, a real problem. Right now, uh, for distal hazards, those that are you know perhaps 10, 15 miles or more from the volcano, there are still issues. There there are lahars, these slurries of hot rock, or, uh, um, and mud. There is volcanic ash. And as you probably recall from 1980, the ash was blown by the winds eastward, and eastern Washington, part of eastern Oregon, got ashed big time. There you can see some of those mammulous clouds, very thick with ash, uh, with the ash about to fall. Something that we have realized more recently is that ash can travel a great distance, as it did uh, in 1992 from the eruption of Mount Spur in Alaska. You know, look at the path of that ash as seen in the red down here. The winds took it and swirled it way down, you know, right through it past all the airports in, in the northern part of the United States and then back up into Canada again. You know, this is really important because it means that, in a sense, there are no more remote volcanoes. You know, we, keep, we, put air, we put civilization next to volcanoes. We put air routes next to volcanoes. And the ash travels to where we are, so we realize how, that this is a big problem, especially because there's such a danger to aircraft. You know, with volcanic ash, uh, volcanic ash can be ingested into the engines of, uh, of aircraft. It can coat the, the engine blades. The engines of a 747 are of a similar temperature as the melting point of volcanic ash, which is simply volcanic glassy rock. And so it melts. Uh, the turbine blades begin to fail because they are turning unevenly, and the pilot is forced to turn the engines off. So um, when you turn the engines off on an aircraft, the plane starts to descend. And there have been some very, very scary situations. And there is one uh, of a KLM jet uh, back in the 1980s with the, uh, the, the pilot 
um, being pretty uh, pretty direct with the with the air traffic control that she was losing, you know, she had lost all power. And actually, she was down to about 10,000 feet in the Chugash Mountains near Anchorage. Um, she was able to take the plane down into this, this lower altitude where there was thicker atmosphere, you know, more dense atmosphere. And she, then she kicked the engines back on, and uh, the thick air managed to knock that, all that deposit off the, the engine turbine blades. She was able to land in Anchorage safely, um, but I think there was a million dollars of damage on that aircraft. So it's a big issue, and you know, particularly because this is a map of the aircraft routes across the Cascades. There are about 2,000 aircraft going over here a day. I think that's commercial aircraft. I don't think it counts the military. Uh, how many people are on those aircraft? Well, we calculated about 225,000 people every day are flying over the Cascade Range. And that's about the size of the city, the population of the city of Spokane. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of aircraft, a lot of uh, our economy at risk. Right, so here's, um, maybe you remember this. Anybody remember this? June 12, 1980, this is Portland, right? You know, Portland... It, it's so funny. When we talk to people, um, people think, well, we got three inches. I think it was like six inches. You know how much it was? <laughs> it was a trace amount. And like, you know, maybe like a little thicker than a pencil point in thickness. But it whips off. It gets picked up so, so fine. It gets picked up very easily by the winds and carried. And so that's why the visibility is so diminished. Yeah, and that was a real problem. But I guess if there is a positive side to this, with the eruption of Mount St. Helens and all the disruption that it caused. Do you know that Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980 was the beginning of a new era in our understanding and taking seriously volcanic ash hazards? Researchers came in. They talked to the people of Yakima, uh, for example, to look at the impacts. Uh, they had a real issue over there, by the way. Uh, they... Uh, <laughs> I was just reading recently about the a report by the city manager, Dick Zace, and he said, you know, the, the street lights came on, uh, it, the, you know, it was like an eclipse happening, but the eclipse lingered. The street lights came on automatically, uh, the traffic was stopped, there was ash everywhere. He had a real problem as a, being city manager, and he had to get his city functional again, so... So you know what he did? He went to the library, but he found it was Sunday and the library was closed. And so he, you know, he rang up the uh, the librarian at home, the old rotary dial, and uh, she, the two of them went to the library and they looked at all the books about volcanoes to see what the impacts might be. They had they didn't have a clue about whether this was poisonous and. Uh, whether it, you know people were going to die from it, or you know, it turns out it was it's, it's not either of those. Um, but they didn't know that. But anyway, they couldn't find any information, and so then they really pulled out the big guns. They did a search of the interlibrary loan. Remember that? <laughs> Still nothing. So they invented their own system, and researchers came in and helped them document all the different effects. And now we have great websites with that information and information about practical handling of volcanic ash 
all around the world, and so Mount St. Helens began all those studies. So yay for Mount St. Helens and the people in Yakima. All right, lahar hazards. They're, these are really far traveled. These can travel tens of miles down valley. Uh, I haven't put anything in here about Mount Rainier, but uh, just know that lahars, these uh, soupy mixtures of rock, water, mud, trees, whatever's in the way, uh, they can travel, you know, 40, 50 miles down valleys. And in fact, if you look at the landscape around the Puget Sound lowlands, especially near Tacoma, you'll see that it's all Mount Rainier volcanic rock. And of course, the, the native people had great oral traditions about the lahars coming through and filling the valleys with bubble-filled stones and such. But the big deal is with lahars, it's not over when it's over. And these go on and on. And because the the rivers pick up all the loose rock that's been carried downstream and continues to carry downstream for decades to centuries to millennia. So much of the Puget Sound lowland, the vicinity of Cannon Auburn, Ording, Puyallup, Sumner, that used to be part of Puget Sound. Now it's filled in with rocks from uh, one of the, uh, or probably a couple of the large lahars there 5,600 years ago, uh, 600 years ago. Both of those. Okay, so here is a small event to give you a little bit of an idea of what these look like. This is just a teeny weeny little one called a debris flow at Mount Rainier, coming down valley. Uh, take it, this footage was taken by a visitor at Tahoma Creek. We think we took all the expletives out. I'm scared. Oh, that's her. Get back, I'm scared. <laughs> from the edge there. <laughs> the ground is It's more than just dirty water. It, it's uh, very dense and contains all, can carry, it can float boulders and large logs. Okay, we get the idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, what causes it? Uh, there's several causes. This one was probably caused by a slug of water that was stored in the glacier that was released suddenly. Now imagine that these glaciers are riddled with, with uh, all kinds of cavities and uh, we call them piping systems, you know, like holes and conduits and everything. And so the water gets stored in there and then when it sufficiently pressurizes, pressurized, it forces itself out. It breaks the ice and comes out suddenly. And then all that water picks up the loose rock, carries it, and it makes this big slurry. 
And then uh, the, just the, the action of, you know, a small debris flow then shakes the ground so much that it collapses the embankment, and these bulk up. We call it bulk up of, of the events to, from very small to very large events. Uh, these traveled maybe five, six miles downstream, and then they just kind of settled out. So, yeah. All right, so that's what we're looking at as a, as a hazard in the valleys around uh, Mount Hood and all, actually all these Cascade volcanoes. Okay, the most recent activity at Mount Hood, let's go back to that. Uh, it was what, roughly 200 years ago. I'm just going to go over here. Uh, that, that was when we had Crater Rock built. If you've been up to the um, ski area there on Palmer Snowfield, you've probably seen the big chunk of rock sitting there in the middle of nowhere. That's uh, actually a lava dome, not unlike what we had at Mount Saint, growing at Mount St. Helens, but a little bit different shape. There was no big explosions, probably lots of small explosions. Um, there were lots of lahars that formed. They came down the rivers, a sandy river. Uh, the Lahars came down the Sandy River, and this is really interesting for all you history buffs because it traveled down the Sandy River. You know, j imagine something about the size or maybe larger from what I just showed you in the video. It traveled, what, uh, probably, you know, three hours or so down to the Columbia River, and then went out into the Columbia River, and it built a big delta here. It forced the river to the north. It ate out some, a few acres of Washington State. It added a few acres to Oregon State. And when Lewis and Clark came through in 1805, they said, like, what happened here? <laughs> and uh, on the way back, uh, they, they did take a look at it. They actually went up the river, the sandy, what we know as a sandy river. They named it the Quicksand River. And they said, like, well, they had no idea what had happened, of course. But it was a lahar. If you go to Oxbow Park today, Fascinating because the river has eroded the embankment, and you can see hundreds and hundreds of trees that are were killed by the, that lahar. Uh, they're still standing. They're still standing in place. So it's that's just fascinating. Okay, now let's talk about monitoring of Mount Hood. So right now we have you know like size uh, eight seismic stations, three GPS global positioning system to look at and see if there's any swelling of the volcano. We have an expansion plan for 2020. We had planned to do it last fall, but the weather closed in. Uh, so we're going to be adding some. So we'll have a total of 11 seismic stations, six GPS stations. We really need that many so that we can pinpoint the location of the magma. Uh, for some comparison, you can see that Mount St. Helens Network has 20 seismic and GPS stations. Okay, three sisters down by, we all know that from our fun ski times down in Bend and Redmond, right? So uh, you can see that the areas in red and yellow, orange, those are areas where lahars can travel. They have traveled in the past and can do so again. So even if you are many miles from that, from uh, the Three Sisters, uh, lahars can come down valley. We could have new volcanic vents form there as well. Uh, this is a region of Oregon where the magma is... Uh, you know, for whatever reason, the, the rocks are sufficiently fractured, perhaps. It, we tend to get these what we call monogenetic craters. Like the magma will come up one place, and it will never come up there again. It will move over uh, three miles and come up another place and then move over to another place. So that area in the oval is where we could have more volcanoes forming. Okay, so we can imagine that, you know, we'd have lahars happening there um, there are about 400 of these little cones in the 
uh, bend area around uh, that region. Um, Mount Bachelor erupted eight, between 8 and 18,000 years ago. So expect that maybe it could happen again there or right nearby. Um, we could dam rivers. We could have outburst floods, as I described earlier, at Mount Rainier. So the most recent activity was at Belknap Crater by Mackenzie Pass, 1,500 to 3,000 years ago, Blue Crater, 1,300. So that's the kind of thing we can expect again at the Three Sisters. So uh, we could have volcanic ash eruptions in terms of things that happen more broadly. We could have uh, very sticky lava flows. Oops. Um, the North Sister is very different from the South Sister and Middle Sister. They look like a lot alike, but it's much older, and we call that one extinct. Don't expect it to reawaken. Newberry Volcano, uh, a little bit south. And this is like the biggest volcano that nobody knows about, right, because it's very broad. It's a shield volcano. It's also a caldera, just like Crater Lake. And this has had some amazing history as well. One of the some of the longest lava flows around have happened from Newberry Volcano. Uh, there have we've actually had the Deschutes River being shunted aside by shunted westward by lava flows um, from this from volcanism in this area. And so that could happen again. And there are like 250 vents in that region over the last 400 year 400,000 years. Um, maybe not too explosive, more like lava flows and little cinder cones. Maybe not too likely to make lahars, but we could get the damming of rivers again and forest fires. You can see we've thought about all these different things. There's a lot that can happen. Uh, that caldera is an order of magnitude smaller than what we have at Yellowstone, but it could be very explosive. It can make very sticky lava flows. Um, the last activity happened there at the Big Obsidian Lava Flow 1,300 years ago. Maybe some of you have been to the Big Obsidian Lava Flow. You've been there, seen that? Amazing. Uh, but we could have larger uh, ones as well, larger eruptions. Crater Lake, Oregon. This is, a, of course, a, one of the most explosive of the Cascade Range volcanoes. And uh, 7,700 years ago, people were living in the area, uh, but and they were affected by the big eruption there. Um, small volcanoes have grown inside the lake, but we don't, we don't see any, we don't see much activity at all happening there. There have been some earthquake swarms, but pretty minor, but it could erupt again. Okay, now, Wayne asked me to talk about our international program as well, so I'm just going to talk about that briefly. And as mentioned earlier, we see that when volcanoes erupt anywhere in the world, we have a civic responsibility to everybody, not just in our nation's boundaries, but elsewhere, to help out. And you know, especially if we have more advanced equipment, because we, when, after seeing 25,000 people die in Nevada de Ruiz, we there's a lot of soul searching that went on, and uh, decided that wasn't going to happen again. So um, the Volcano Disaster Assistance Program was started in the late 1980s, and it was designed to so that people with uh, more technology could go into other nations, help them set up their volcano monitoring instruments, and help them respond when there was an eruption. So they've been to 70 different volcanic crises. Like this is like 20 some people have been to 70 volcanic crises around the world at 50 volcanoes, and then we've helped uh, prepare at 12 different volcanoes. So uh, this, is, this is a really fun group to be involved in. 
the VDAP, as we call it, is paid for by uh, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, a, a part of the State Department, and um, great foreign, inexpensive in the end, foreign aid. In the upper picture, you can see that uh, Peter Kelly in the green shirt is helping people make their own little seismic uh, collection, seismic seismometer collection systems, little data loggers. And uh, you can also see the uh, that uh, people on the ground there with a helicopter. That's one of the international response groups. In addition to going to just to where volcanoes are about to erupt or erupting, we also go in and help foreign governments. And uh, you know, Susan Col um, Calvert's son, uh, Andy Calvert, seeing it's visible in the picture there. He works for the California Volcano Observatory, and has been to Saudi Arabia. He's worked at Mount Shasta and. I think he's been in Kazakhstan, many, many, many places. So, um, so you can talk to Susan about uh, what her son has been involved in. I'm sure he's giving you lots of stories. Yeah. All right, then there's also a whole series of meetings, a Cities on Volcanoes meeting. We've had 11 of these since the 19, mid-1990s where people from volcanic obser volcano observatories around the world get together and we discuss, you know, how can we better serve the people in our volcano prone or eruption prone communities. So uh, as I say, we've had 11 of these and we're about to have another one of these meetings at Santorini in Greece. Uh, one of the programs that I've been involved with starting actually is uh, the Binational Exchange Program. And remember the Nevada de Ruiz disaster that you saw earlier in the program and uh, the, a number of people who were youngsters back in 1985, or the, they, I should say they were college students, they personally experienced losses uh, during that eruption. And now they have gone on into geology to work at the volcano observatories, and they are very, very passionate and very, very motivated to never see that kind of disaster happen again. We realize that as geologists, we get to do traveling to foreign countries, but the public officials in our communities, they don't get that opportunity. So you know, we talk about lahars and ash in there, it's like a textbook learning, you know. So we've decided to take them down to Columbia. And so far we've taken about 30 public officials, uh, fire chiefs, emergency managers, um, you know, everyone in, in, who does response. We've taken them to Columbia, uh, and then we bring the Colombians to the United States, and they are very pleased to be able to learn about our new technologies for warning systems, for example. And uh, here you can see, uh, here's Nevada de Ruiz on the left side over the city of Monticellis. And here is Mount Rainier with the city of Ording down below on this very flat plain formed by a lahar uh, 600 years ago. Um, we have similar hazards. We have similar challenges with reaching out to people and keeping people apprised of a, you know, the low-frequency low but high-consequence events. And a lot of good practical knowledge is shared. Uh, this gentleman here, um, we heard, we've heard lots of survival, survival stories in our, I guess, uh, our fifth, five times down there. I leave on Saturday with another group from near Glacier Peak Volcano in Washington. We're taking them down there uh, for a week starting Saturday. But uh, this man, well, he lost... Uh, was it 18 or so members of his family, including his mother? He had his mother's picture in his pocket, took it out and showed us. 
Here you can see the fire chief of Ording and from Mount Rainier um, with their Colombian colleague. This is the back of the, of the fire station that was destroyed in the city of Armero near Nevada Norways. Here's the, the cupola from the old cathedral in the city of Armero. Here's the present uh, fire station. Uh, this gentleman from Ording has arranged to bring old equipment down, that there is good stuff, it's just not being used anymore, bringing it down to the Colombians here. Uh, but anyway, this gentleman on the, on the left had many good uh, stories about it. So don't be fooled by just beautiful scenery. <laughs> um, recognize that, you know, you don't have to panic. What should you do now that you have this information? Become familiar with some, where you can get information and who's going to give it to you uh, when the time comes that you need to know it. So we do have an alert level system, and this information is on our website. Uh, so it goes from normal to advisory watch and warning. You'll be hearing about that. For aviation, uh, that's the aviation color code for aviators when there's volcanic ash in the air. We have many different instruments for getting uh, information out we have a, a special uh, report sheet for the aviators. We have another one for people on the ground. You know, on and on and on. Um, we have lots of ways to reach people. Uh, you can actually get this by email if you want, if you sign up for it. You can get the, the weekly report. It's really pretty boring, and occasionally some of our staff uh, gets to writing poetry. <laughs> it's not necessarily what we have in mind, but fortunately it's been pretty boring. We just get to say... We've had a, you know, a small earthquake swarm at Mount Rainier this week, uh, small debris flow on Mount Hood, um, nothing new. It's just normal for this, for this area. So if you go to our website, you can sign up for, to get these weekly reports. Uh, you can also go to um, social media, USGS Volcanoes on Facebook. Oops. And uh, you can go to the website and get lots of information about uh, the volcanoes. So there's a lot there for you. We put it there recognizing most people won't use it until it's absolutely needed. So, so yes, this can happen again in the Cascades, and it probably will. So be prepared. Don't be surprised. And tell your friends and family, just be ready and know that uh, you're probably going to survive a volcanic eruption. Chances are great that you will, but be aware of the issues and pay attention to uh, the words of public officials and emergency managers. Be prepared. Stay, to stay in place and um, don't panic. Just, just enjoy the view when it does happen. You'll be Thank you. Carolyn, thank you very, very much for coming all the way from Vancouver. We appreciate it very, very much. This concludes today's Keeping Current program. I hope that you have come away as excited as I was when I originally listened to her presentation. If you want to learn more about the Cascades Volcano Observatory, you can Google the USGS Cascades Volcano Observatory and then also take a look at the Keeping Current website. Thanks for listening to Keeping Current. This has been another edition of Keeping Current with Wayne Potter.